God, we just thank you for all you do, uh, who you are. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the church here. Father, we just pray that they uh, that there is a, a desire, a love for your word, to uh, to defend it, to know it, to weigh our lives by it, uh, to use it as the the compass uh, of the direction we go and the way we just uh, view everything, the transformation of our lives. I pray that we do that. I pray that that is something that is infectious throughout our church. Lord. Uh, and I just, that, that that will be the determining thing here, God, because that's your will. Uh, that's how we know your will is by your word. So we just pray that you do that. And I think for this bunch here tonight, I just know a lot of folks had a busy week and stuff, and kind of in the day, and so I pray we can. Enjoy this, kind of kick back, and have a good time. Amen. Amen. All right. All right. Well, great to be back tonight. And as I mentioned last week, we are in the lengthiest chapter of our work of our workbook. It's going to be a chapter that covers four chapters of the Gospel of John. So I think I did the math somewhat around 190, 195-ish verses in this section of John's Gospel, and Lord willing, after this week, we'll be back to a more manageable portion of Scripture that we'll be working through in the remaining chapters of the workbook. So again, just want to ask you all to bear with me as we read through tonight's section of Scripture. I also mentioned last week that during the first century and during the centuries that immediately followed the first century, uh, very earliest group of Christians, when they would have received letters or uh, books of the New Testament, it would not have been uncommon for them to read the entirety of that letter in one sitting. So if you guys think that reading four chapters of a book of the Bible is a lot, in those days it would have been considered uh, child's play because uh, this this uh, book of the Bible alone, the Gospel of John, has 21 chapters in it. And um, to read all 21 chapters in one sitting out loud can seem like a lot, and it is a lot. Uh, to us living in 21st century America. So I just want to ask you guys as we read John 7 through 10, do your best to stay focused on what we're reading. We're going to discuss a lot of the big picture applications of this portion of his gospel. We definitely aren't going to be able to cover every detail from this portion of the gospel of John, uh, but Lord willing, we'll be edified after we consider this portion of of John's gospel in addition to the questions that John MacArthur has us answer in this part of the workbook. So with that in mind, if you were here last week, you'll recall what we did is as we read the text, one person read each of uh, the pages in which the text was included on. So I think that's a good model for us to follow this week. So pages 50 through 63 have verses from John 7 to John 10. So what I'm going to say that we should do tonight, some of us are going to have to read twice. So maybe what we do is one person reads two pages, and then the next person reads two pages, and then the next person reads two pages, and we just kind of go from there. Does that sound like that's a manageable plan? Um, sounds good, except... I'm like, yeah, it sounds good. Sounds good? All right, so how about I do this? I will read page 50... 
and 51 that gets us through the first 23 verses of John 7. And then after I finish, if a volunteer just wants to read the next two pages, and then you just kind of do a popcorn. Like remember back in grade school, popcorn, next person reads. We're going we're gonna to go back to grade school here as we work through um, the Gospel of John. That's a public school thing, so some of you guys are homeschooled. That, that might not resonate well. Anyways, let me, let me read the first 23 verses of John 7, and then again just fill in as, um, as a person finishes reading two pages. So... John 7, beginning in verse 1. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers did not believe in him. Then Jesus said to his brothers, My time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. You go up to this feast. I am not yet going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. When Jesus had said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up, Then he also went up to the feast, not openly, but as it were, in secret. Then the Jews sought him at the feast and said, Where is he? And there was much complaining among the people concerning him. Some said, He is good. Others said, No, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly of him for fear of the Jews. Now about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. And the Jews marveled, saying, How does this man know letters, having never studied? Jesus answered them and said, My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wills to do God's will, he shall know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true, and no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The people answered and said, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Jesus answered and said to them, I did one work, and you all marvel. Moses, therefore, gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, so that the law of Moses should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? All right, next person to read. Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid a hand on him. 
concerning him, and the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him. Then Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. Then the Jews said among themselves, Where does he intend to go that we shall not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What is this thing that he said, You will seek me and not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit has not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Therefore, many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly, this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But some said, Will the Christ come out of Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem, where David was? So there was a division among the people because of him. Now some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Then the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees, who said to them, Why have you not brought him? The officers answered, No man ever spoke like this man. Then the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had who he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? They answered and said to him, Are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. And everyone went to his own house. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, They said, No, teacher, this one was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This, is, this they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. Jesus stooped down and rolled on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, Who is without sin among you? Let him throw the stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And then those who heard of being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the one standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of you? Has no one condemned you? She said, No, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in the darkness, but have the light of life. The Pharisees therefore said to him, You bear witness of yourself. 
your witness is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I came from and where I am going. You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in the law that the testimony of two men is true. Now I am the one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. And they said, No more of your father. Jesus answered, Do not know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught <coughs> No one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. Then Jesus said to them again, I am going away, and you will seek me. I will die of your sin, where I go, you cannot come. So the Jews said, Will he kill himself, because he says, Where I go, you cannot come? Jesus said to them, You are from me, I am from love. You are from this world, I am not of this world. Therefore I said to you that you will die of your sins, for it if you do not believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Then they said to him, Who are you? And Jesus said to them, Just what I have been saying to you from the beginning. I have many things to say and to judge concerning you. But he who sent me is true. I speak to the world those things which I heard from him. They do not understand that he spoke to them of the Father. And Jesus said to them, When you lift up the Son of Man, you will know that I am he. That I do nothing of myself, but as the Father taught me, I speak these things. And he who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. As he spoke these words, may believe in him. He said so Jews who believe in him. If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's sentence and you have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them, Most surely I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham descended, but who seek to kill him, because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have seen with your father. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you are Abraham's true, you will do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told me the truth which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this. You do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, We were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, not, not, nor have I come of myself. But he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You are of your father in death, and the desire of father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and not stand the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources. When he is a liar and the father of it. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me, which of you convinced me of sin. And if I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? He who is, he who is of God hears God's words. Therefore you do not hear, because you are not of God. Then the Jews answered and said to him, 
Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. And I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Most assuredly I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never see death. Then the Jews said to him, Now, we know that you have a demon, Abraham is dead and a prophet, and you say, If anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who is dead? And the prophets are dead? Why, who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father who honors me, of whom, whom you say that he, he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And, and if I say I do not know him, I should be a liar like you. But I do not know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Most surely I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Then he took up stones to throw it at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going to the midst of them, and so passed by. Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned in this manner for his parents that he was born blind. Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed to him. We must work the works of him who sent him who sent me as long as it is day. Not as coming when no one can work. While I am the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spit on the ground, he made clay of spittle and applied the clay to his eyes. And said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seen. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, This is he. Still others were saying, No, but is like him. He kept saying, I am the one. So they were saying to him, How then were your eyes open? He answered, The man who is called Jesus made clay and went in my eyes said to me, go to, go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and I washed, and I received sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to, they brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied clay, he applied clay to my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said to the blind man again, What do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews then did not believe it, believe it of him, that he had been blind and had received sight till they called the parents of the very, the very one who had received his sight. And questioned them, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? And how does he now, he now see? The parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But now, but how he sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, He is of age, ask him. 
That's about some chicken squat stuff right there. <laughs> so a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He then answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that thou, that though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? <laughs> they reviled him and said, you are, his disciple. you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to them, Well, here, here is an amazing thing, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man was not from God, he could do nothing. Mm. Is that where I stopped? Yeah. yeah. Verse 34. They answered and said to him, You were completely born in sins, and are you teaching us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard, and they had cast him out. And when he had found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of God? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have born seen, seen him, and it is he who is talking with you. Then he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world, and that those who do not see me see, and that those who see me be made blind. Then some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say, We see, therefore your sin remains. Most of us, surely, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs us up, up some of those ways, the same is the thief and robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by the name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will be no, there will be no means to follow to a stranger, but will flee from him, for they do not know his voice of the stranger. Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand those things which he spoke to them. Then Jesus said to them again, Most certainly I say to you, I am the word of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear him. Hear them. I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out of the time and find pasture. The thief does not come except to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life, and that they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But I but a hireling who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolves coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is the hireling and does not care about the sheep. I am a good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I, am, I know by, by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. 
Then long song must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be no flock and one shepherd, or one flock and one shepherd. Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Therefore there was a division of, again among the Jews because of these sayings. And many of them said, He had a demon in his mad. Why did you listen to him? Others said, There are not the words of one who has demons. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Now it was a feast of dedication in Jerusalem, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple and saw him in the porch. Then the Jews surrounded him and said to him, I'll finish it off. How long do you keep us in doubt? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you do not believe because you are not of my sheep as I said to you. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy and because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said, You are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I do not do the works of my Father, do not believe me. But if I do, though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Therefore they sought again to seize him, but he escaped out of their hand. And he went away beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at first, and there he stayed. Then many came to him and said, John performed no sign, but all the things that John spoke about this man were true, and many believed in him there. All right, my friends, we made it through the marathon of Scripture. Four chapters, four lengthy chapters at that. Lots to cover. Obviously, there's no way we're going to be able to touch every detail that we just read. However, I do hope and pray that as we consider the questions that we have in this chapter of our workbook, we'll be greatly enriched and edified and encouraged in our faith moving forward. Let's start with the drawing near question, back to page 49 of the workbook, top of page 49, drawing near, just to kind of kick off some of our conversations tonight. The question says, Jesus used many metaphors to help explain who he was and why he came. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the way. I am the light. Those are some of the metaphors that we've encountered up to this point in the Gospel of John. We're going to see more as we continue to progress through this New Testament book. But here's the question that I want us all to consider as a group and feel free to share which of these images that we've encountered so far, Jesus as the door, as the good shepherd, as the way, as the light, which of those images is most encouraging to you and why? The door. If you don't go through the door, there's no shepherd. Mm. 
And you got to go through the door to get to the sh- even though the shepherd's at the door you got to you have to make that commitment to go into the door that's right that's good i like the light i am the light uh and that may be where i'm at right now but it seems like uh i have spent a year fighting for truth mm. uh on a lot of different levels and uh did not get on several different arenas mm-hmm. and uh it is uh, i think that's think this is where Christianity is at now. Absolutely. If you draw a distinct line of what Christianity really is uh, in the world of everyone being a Christian, Christianity is just this thing that it is. Uh, Jesus was the light out of the darkness. Mm. And this this way, right way, is distinctly different from all this other stuff. That's right. So that's the one I think of right today. Amen. Right. And so when I found the right way, this means so much more to me mm. because there's so many different ways being thrown out in the world right Absolutely. now. And there is only one way. Right. That's good. Well, for me and my wife, uh, we, we went through this question and, of course, this section together as we do each week. Uh, we picked the Good Shepherd, not just because that's what was discussed here in chapter 10, but just because in our circumstances, we've seen how Christ has really provided for us in some really unique ways, one of which being this church family that we've joined here in the past four months. We couldn't be more grateful to be a part of uh, the life and ministry at FBC Inez and just knowing that Christ cares for his own. He leads his own, just like a shepherd leads his own sheep and cares for them and provides for them. Um, we have seen that in a unique, uh, many unique ways, really, over the past several months. So um, for us, just Christ being the good shepherd has really stood out. Um, well, the context, uh, again, big picture, 30,000-foot flyover, what's going on in the 190, 195 verses that we just read together. Can I get a volunteer to read that first paragraph? I'll take the middle section and then a volunteer to read the bottom Paragraph on page 49. So somebody take the first one, please. The main thrust of this section of John's Gospel can be summarized as high-intensity hatred. As a smoldering dislike of Christ erupts into a blazing inferno. Chapter 7 and 8 focus on Jesus at the Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. The two major themes associated with this feast, water and light, come to prominence in this section central truth that dominates the entire passage is that Jesus was on a divine timetable. He lived according to God's sovereign and perfect timing and direction. Chapter 9 features the healing of the man with congenital blindness. Not only does this sign point again to the fact that Jesus is Messiah and Son of God, but it also underlines the blindness of the hyper-religious Jews due to their callous unbelief. The characteristics of unbelief are clearly seen here. Number one, unbelief sets false standards. Number two, unbelief always wants more evidence but never has enough. Third, unbelief does biased research on a purely subjective basis. Fourth, unbelief rejects obvious facts. 
And fifth, unbelief is self-centered. Jesus' discourse on being the good shepherd in chapter 10 flows directly from chapter 9. Christ addressed the same group of people, those false shepherds who were leading the nation astray from the true knowledge and kingdom of Messiah. In contrast to these self-appointed and self-righteous impostors, God had appointed the sinless Christ as Savior and King. As you read through this lengthy passage, you will be drawn up in the tightening drama. Ask God to show you more. Very good. And I, I think we see that. Remember, if you're familiar with how books of the Bible were originally put together, and Nick actually mentioned this here on Sunday, the chapter and verse divisions were not part of the original manuscripts. That's something that man added in later to try to uh, organize and structure um, particular books of the Bible and really make it easier for us to go and make reference to certain passages. But if you look at really chapter 7 and 8 and chapter 9 and 10, it's all one flow. Chapters 7 and 8 really flow well together. It's part of an extended narrative that's going on. Chapters 9 and 10 is the same thing. These aren't just separate events per se. I mean, they're, they're separate in the sense that um, they, they happen at different moments in time throughout the course of Christ's ministry, but they're really united in the fact that they build off of one another. They're trying to accomplish certain themes that John wants his readers to encounter at this portion of his gospel record. Again, the main point that he's trying to get across is that Jesus is the Son of God and that if you believe in him, you will have everlasting life. Again, the, the main theme of the gospel, John 20, verse 31 Anytime that you're reading this gospel, everything that you see, all those details, they're trying to get you back and focus on that main theme, that main point for him writing this book. So page 50, keys to the text. Uh, Two keys that MacArthur notes. Again, we see this first one time and time again, not only in what we just read, but also in all the gospels. It's this idea of stoning the act of stoning somebody uh, as a way of putting them to death, as a way of capital punishment. Look at what MacArthur notes, page 50. He notes that the usual method of capital punishment in ancient Israel was stoning. People who broke specific statutes of the law of Moses were put to death by stoning. Stoning was usually carried out by the men of the community upon the testimony of at least two witnesses who would then cast the first stone. So the Old Testament basis for stoning as a form of capital punishment it's found in Deuteronomy chapter 17, verses 5 to 7. I want to read that text. See the Old Testament basis for what we see playing out in John's narrative. Deuteronomy 17, verse 5 and following says this. Behold, if it is true and the thing certain that this detestable thing has been done in Israel, then you shall bring out that man or that woman who has done the evil deed to your gates, that is, the man or the woman, and then you shall stone them to death. On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. The hand of the witnesses shall be first against him to put him to death, and afterward the hand of all the people, so you shall purge the evil from your midst. Okay, so during Old Covenant Israel, stoning was a way of carrying out justice for gross immorality or gross sin that was committed in those days. MacArthur notes some of those instances of gross immorality or gross sin that would have merited stoning was uh, disobedience to God's law, child sacrifice, consultation with magicians, blasphemy, which we talked about last week, breaking the Sabbath, worshiping false gods, 
How about this one, kids? Rebelling against parents and adultery. So you could actually be stoned in Old Covenant Israel for disobeying parents on an ongoing basis. Or if, or, Huh? Why do we quit that? You know what? Take that up with God. He, in a theocratic nation, he had a particular purpose for these, um, for these crimes or these offenses meriting stoning. I think truly the, the main reason, and I think a lot of theologians would agree here, that Israel, as Christ is the light of the world, Israel was to be the light to the nations. They were to be different in their moral conduct and their religious purity than all the pagan nations that were surrounding them. So this was a way of showing all those pagan nations that didn't care about adultery. They didn't care about disobedient kids. They didn't care about consulting with magicians and so on. It was to show those nations, hey, we serve the one true living God. He is holy, holy, holy. He has righteous standards in place for how we should live and how we should worship him. Therefore, our lifestyle is going to be marked different. And though we don't have those same um, penalties in place today in the new covenant as Christians, like we're not going to stone kids who are disobedient to their parents. We don't have a biblical basis for doing that in the new covenant. We do have a biblical basis for looking at those examples and saying, you know, God is so holy. He is so righteous. He's so pure that he takes our conduct that seriously. He takes our worship that seriously. He wants our lives to be a light to the rest of the world, just as Israel was a light to the nations. And of course, just as Christ in his perfect, sinless um, nature is the light of the world, as we saw um, in John. Of course, John 8, 7, we see, we'll talk about John 8, John seven fifty three through 8, 12. We'll talk about that more later. Um, it's a very interesting topic. Some of you may be aware of the um, controversy around that passage. Some of you might not be. We'll talk about that later. But um, John 8, 7, we see in that account a woman's caught in adultery based on Old Covenant uh, Judaism. They had a basis of putting her to death via stoning. They had two or three witnesses, as we read from the Deuteronomy 17 passage. The people who caught the person in any of these acts that merited stoning, they would lead the charge in stoning. So, like, people wouldn't just go and say, hey, somebody has done something wrong. We need to put him to death via stoning. Like if they were that convinced and they had borne witness to that offense, they would actually have to throw the first stone. So that was how big of a deal this was. It was, number one, these offenses are so bad they merit stoning. But number two, if you see somebody doing this, you have an account before God and before the covenant community to actually enact uh, discipline or an act judgment on behalf of God. So this was not something that was to be done um, flippantly or without fear and trembling. This was something that was a, a great responsibility and a great accountability structure within Old Testament Israel. So that's stoning. Um, that's, that's, that's something that we see again and again and again in the Gospels. And even Paul and Stephen and others in the book of Acts were also subject to stoning as well. But let's look at the second key to the text before we get into our discussion questions here. Um, Jewish religious leaders. Somebody read that paragraph, middle of page 50. Jewish religious leaders. Jesus rebuked them for using human traditions and old by scripture and for 
Absolutely. So the Sadducees were the liberals of that day. They were the theological liberals. They didn't view the entirety of the Old Testament as authoritative. They didn't believe in the resurrection from the dead, existence from angels. They, they, they denied fundamental pillars of Old Covenant Judaism, whereas the Pharisees, they were the legalists of the day. I mean, they were certainly conservative. They had a high view of Scripture. They had a high view of the um, ordinances of God, whether it be his commands for worship, whether it be how they should live. But they also added a bunch of tradition, as we talked about last week. They added the Mishnah and the Talmud, oral traditions that not only were viewed as equal uh, to Scripture, but even more so than Scripture. They would put more emphasis on their man-made legalistic traditions than on that of which God had revealed in the Old Testament. And something to keep in mind here as you try to differentiate between the Pharisees and Sadducees, I learned this when I was at Masters, um, this is how you tell the difference between a Pharisee and a Sadducee. The, the Sadducees deny the resurrection, so they're sad, you see. Okay? So uh, if you, you know, that, that, that's kind of a tongue-in-cheek joke. So Pharisees, Sadducees, how do I, how do I keep them uh, differentiated? Well, the Sadducees, they're sad because there's no life after death. They're going to just die and, and they're going to cease to exist. And then the Pharisees, of course, well, they believed in life after death. So little joke there. Um, I thought it was helpful because I had, a, I, I had to uh, study and pass exams, and I had to be able to differentiate between those two groups. So another way of looking at them, Sadducees, they're the theological liberals of the day. The uh, Pharisees, theological conservatives of the day, but a little bit beyond um, so what we would use orthodox. Uh, if there's no, so they deny the so there, there was no eternal life. Yeah. As far as the Sadducees were concerned. Mm-hmm. So what was their driving force to being who they were? Power, influence, okay. their way of being able to have control, and it's like what we see in cults today. Really, there are people in cults right now who know that what they believe. Is, or let's just say it like this, what they confess to believe is not actually what they believe in their heart. They just love having the, the authority and the control over people that they have in their system. Um, you know, think about David Koresh and the Branch Davidians. He knew all along that he was deceiving people. He loved what he got out of it. I mean, there's people like that in every generation of human history who use religion as a way to deceive people and have power, and that's exactly what the Sadducees were about. They wanted to have power, influence, and authority um, over the people of Israel in that day. Pharisees believed, listen, the Pharisees believed the word of God 100%. They just went too far. They said, hey, we're going to be so devoted to God's purity and his holiness. We're going we're to create all this, this other traditions that we've got to adhere to to really set ourselves apart from all these pagans that are undermining God's word. And when they did that, they became self-righteous. They went too far and they actually undermined what it was they were trying to put on a pedestal. Pretty fascinating what happens when you go further than God's word. You can have great intentions in doing so and still wind up undermining and doing more damage than what you initially set out to do. So how did they keep how did they keep their society from intervening? How, how did the Pharisees keep their their family, their children, from mm-hmm. intervening with the That's that's a great question. You would think it would be fire and water and water wouldn't Yeah. You know, I, I, haven't, I have not done enough studying on, on what culturally was put in place. I would imagine um, when Jesus came on the scene, I would imagine that they had a mutual enemy so they could kind of put aside their theological differences and, 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 and go after a common enemy because Jesus was a threat to both. He was a threat to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He called them both out for their hypocrisy. 
And we actually see when, when Paul in the book of Acts, he's standing before uh, trial and, he, and he's giving his account of the resurrection of Christ. The Pharisees actually like side with Paul and then they start button heads with the Sadducees. So I think there, there had to have been some sort of cultural um, barrier or, or, or roadblock, if you will, to keep absolute anarchy from breaking out in those days in the religious specter. But we do know there would have been tension these are vastly different beliefs, vastly different beliefs about the Old Testament, vastly different beliefs um, about what happens after death. And, um, and, and I would say probably as a result of the Sadducees' view of the Old Testament, probably vastly different beliefs about how you should actually live your life. I bet, I, but they still use the law as the law of their land. Yes. Both groups. Yeah. So the law was still yeah. there. The, the, the five books, they, they could all agree the five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, what Moses received from God to, to give them their laws for how Israel should function. They all agreed to that. that. That was common ground for them. Absolutely. That's why they keep mentioning Abraham and Moses time and time and time again in these discussions, because both of those groups had a high view of Abraham and a high view of Moses because they were included in the first five books of the Bible. Now, good questions. Um, Wayne, I'm actually intrigued now. I want to, want to, research that further how how did how did how was there not um chaos more often between those two groups vying for power in the in the uh really not just the first century but even those centuries leading up to christ you know that that 400 plus year window before christ came um okay number one though uh page 63 let's get into some of these questions already have had great discussions but question one on page 63 this has always fascinated me what did Jesus' family, specifically his brothers, think of him? And what clues do you find here to support your answer? Go back to John chapter 7. Um, John 7 verses 1 to 9 really show that relationship dynamic. And I'm going to read Mark 3.21 because it's labeled here as a verse to consider. So Mark 3.21 says this. When his own family heard of Jesus, and this is, um, this is of Jesus going around, preaching God's word, um, performing miracles, the crowds are following him. It says, when Jesus' own family heard of, of that, all of those things, Christ's teaching, his miracles, he, he, he's drawn a crowd, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, he has lost his senses, he's lost his mind. He's a cult leader, right? Uh, and, then, and then in verses 1 to 7, of, excuse me, 1 to 9 of John chapter 7, we see a little bit of hints of that animosity between Christ and his brothers. What do you, what do you see there in the text? I noted a few things. They're trying to send him, to send him away. If you are who you say, they'll show everybody. Yeah, and, and, and not just that, like... not believing. Go, go, to, go to Judea where you're intentionally not wanting to go to because in Judea, they are going to try to kill you. Saying, dude, go to Judea, Jesus. You know, if you really are who you say you are, go to Judea and convince them. Show them that you really are. Can you, can you imagine how much bitterness and resentment must have set in? And I don't know if you all knew this or not, but most historians believe that Joseph, the husband of Mary, would have died at some point um, when Jesus was a very young man, Jesus is the oldest of all those siblings. Jesus would not have only been the perfect child and the perfect sibling. He would have had to follow his own father or his earthly father, that is, um, not his real father, um, 
stepfather, if you will. He would have had to follow in his footsteps and raise all of his siblings. And his siblings would have probably resented him for that. Not only is this guy, he never sins, he never backtalks, he, he, he never does anything wrong. He's, he's our mom's favorite. And now this guy's, he's our dad now. He's functioning as our dad. And there would have been so much bitterness and resentment just from that alone. And now he's going around claiming to be God. He's drawing a huge crowd. He's performing all these miracles. Like, we're tired of this guy. We want to get rid of him at all costs. So that's what you, that's what you see here. And then, of course, they just don't believe also. And they think, they're like, man, like, yeah, he was a great kid and all. Yeah, he never messed up. But there ain't no way this guy's God. Really? Yeah. So, I mean... I think you see that pretty clearly in the text. So they're kind of throwing in the pit like Joseph's brother. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's exactly right. All right, so yeah, so obviously Jesus had, and let me just say this by way of just personal application. For anyone that needs to hear this tonight, I, I don't know where you're at. But if following Christ faithfully costs you something in your family, know that it costs Jesus something also. Jesus was faithful to the word of God until the call God put on his life, uh, that the father put on his life as the son of God and as the Messiah. Jesus experienced great cost for faithfulness to what he came into this world to do. You and I as his followers, a servant's not greater than his master. We may have to have a great cost in our lives for faithfulness to what God calls us to. So just know that. Just hopefully be encouraged by that. I don't know where all of you are at with your families and with your loved ones, but just know, hey, when times get tough, if there's a cost involved for following Christ, know Christ, your Lord and Savior, there was a cost involved in his life as well. Uh, So hopefully that's an encouragement to you. Um, Number two, so we've looked at the brothers' reaction to Christ. What about the crowds? And this is also fascinating. Look at at verses 14 to 19 of John 7, page 51 in your workbook. So we see the crowd's response to Christ's teaching, and then we see Jesus describing his teaching. Um, First, let's start with the crowd. What are the crowds saying? Remember, Jews, think about this. Jews would have been anyone from ordinary Israelites on the street all the way up to the highest religious officials of that day. John is using that term kind of as a broad stroke to encompass all of those categories of people. Laity to clergy. Right? Lowest to highest. That's, that's what he's doing. What do you see, though? Look at verse 15. John seven fifteen, page 51. What does it say there? They were marveled. Yeah, they marveled. They were impressed. They were impressed, right? This guy knows the scriptures. He's never been educated. He's never been trained. This guy. Never been in school, right? Um, but notice this. Notice what Jesus says right off the heels of that. Verse 16 and following. Verse 16 is the key, in my opinion. My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. I didn't just make this stuff up. I received this from my Father, God the Father. Of course, I'm God the Son. It's my doctrine as well, part of the Trinity. Um, But notice that Jesus' teaching, he appeals, it's not subjective. He's appealing... He could have appealed to himself. Obviously, he was the son of God. He was the Messiah. He was sinless. He had every right to appeal to his own validity as a teacher. But he appeals to the Father. He says, I got this truth from the one who sent me into this world to accomplish the redemption of the elect. That's why I'm here. And let me just say this too. 
if anyone says doctrine's not important, you're putting too much emphasis on doctrine, too much emphasis on truth. Listen, Jesus cared more about doctrine than any person who's ever lived. And that doctrine that he cared about and that he promoted and that he um, believed, it was the doctrine that was consistent with the Word of God. So the question is never, should we care about doctrine? Should we study doctrine? The better question is, is the doctrine that we believe and the doctrine we study consistent with the Word of God? Because Jesus believed doctrine, he loved doctrine, he defended doctrine, he proclaimed doctrine. We should do the same as his people. It's important. Just got to be biblical doctrine. Got to be based on Scripture. Any other thoughts or comments before we go to number three? That's true, what you said. Uh, and this is where you get called a legalist. You know, or a Pharisee, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, usually the, the plain of the Sadducees. Yep. Uh, anyway. No, that's good, I'm brother. With you, I'm down with it. Yeah. You're right. Yeah. Number three, big chunk of scripture, not going to be able to, you know. Oh, go ahead, Frank. Okay, well, right here on, uh, on one, when he said that Jesus' uh, family, you know, and his brother, what is the thing about him? Yes. I'm going to let my wife read this because she can read better than I. That's what I got. Okay. Yeah, so, so good question. First off, I'll just say this. I, I should have mentioned earlier, uh, Jesus' siblings would come to faith later. James and, of course, Jude. Uh, we know 
just because they wrote books in the New Testament that they would come to faith. So that there was, by God's grace, conversion experiences experienced by the siblings of Christ. Um, but to your question, when, when speaking of the different Jameses in the New Testament, I want to start there. Um, I know of three off the top of my head. You have James, the son of Alphaeus, James, the uh, son of Zebedee, brother of John, and then James, the brother of Jesus. Uh, so there are different Jameses in the New Testament. You just got to discern based on the context which James is who. Um, but to the question about Galatians 1.19, when, when speaking of the Lord's brother, they shared a common mother, right? Like Jesus took a true humanity that was, he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, but his humanity came from his mother's. He had a true human nature. So by virtue of a shared human mother, the scripture can rightly call James the brother of Jesus because they have a, they have a shared humanity through a shared mother. Um, so that's what, that's what you're seeing in Galatians 1.19. That makes sense? All right, very good. Um, Okay, so number three, um, what do the Pharisees claim about Jesus? That is his identity and nature, and what did Jesus in turn say about their nature, about their true nature? So um, I saw three just absolute, like knife to the gut. Like The Pharisees are just coming after Jesus in that section. Um, what did y'all see in the text? Yeah, he had a demon. That I mean, that's crazy, right? Calls him a Samaritan, which we learned either last week or a couple weeks ago. That was a huge insult because the Jews hated Samaritans. They weren't pure bloods. Um, what else? What else do you see there? How about verse 41 of John 8? That one's interesting. Interesting jab, if you will. John eight forty one, page fifty six. Yeah, we were not born of fornication. We had one father. Yeah. So why do you think they would have said that? We were not born of fornication. What do you think was the rumors going around in those days about Mary? Yeah. Yeah. That Mary, 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 she cheated on Joseph. She wasn't faithful to the betrothal. God didn't. God didn't just cause her to miraculously conceive and get pregnant like she, she she's a prostitute she, she's somebody who went out and had an affair with someone that, they would have viewed jesus as the the son of a harlot the son of a of a woman who was unfaithful to the man that she was betrothed to marry so that's what they're saying they're saying you know we're, we're nothing like you like we're we're children of the true um the, the true seed of god as it were abraham right not 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 some not some offspring of a of a harlot, right? That that would have been a huge dig at Jesus. Um, so yeah, I mean, it didn't get much worse than that. You're a Samaritan. You're you're born of fornication. You have a demon. I mean, those are those are terrible things to call somebody. But what does Jesus doesn't pull punches either, though? If you're paying attention to the narrative, what does Jesus say about these guys? You're from your father, the devil. Um, you, you, yeah, you want to do the desires of your father. You're not of God. He's going to say in John 10, you are not of God's sheep. You're a goat. You are not of God's sheep. You will never believe. You are not his sheep. Um, so 
there, there's a lot there. Um, and I'll just say this, you know, there is a way to stand for truth firmly without, w- without crossing that line to sin. We so often do, right? We so often respond out of self-righteousness or pride or um, wanting to get even. But it is possible to stand for truth and do so in a way that is, um, that's righteous, that's um, not crossing any unnecessarily, uh, unnecessary lines. We see that modeled here by Jesus. Um, everything he said was appropriate and everything that he said here was true about those Pharisees. And let me just say this, when calling out false teachers, it requires strong language at times. I mean, if somebody is a, if somebody is deceiving people, if they're willfully leading people astray, it requires firm rebuke and, and correction. Teachers will be held to a higher degree of accountability before God. You see that in Hebrews 13, um, James 3, 1, many places in the New Testament indicates. Like if you're going to be teaching people God's word, you have a higher degree of accountability. So that requires a higher degree of, um, of rebuke at times if, if they're preaching and teaching heresy, right? So that's what we see here from Christ. Good. They did that. Mary and Joseph was not married when Jesus was born. Right. But they also, either they knew it and just had to deny it, that he was born in the city of David, just as the scripture had, had uh, the prophets had said in the Old Testament. Yeah. But, but they don't ever mention that. When they're trying to pin him down mm-hmm. of who he was, oh yeah, you were born of uh, fornication, but he was also born in the city of David. Right. That's where the Messiah is going to come. Right. They, 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 they let that go, but they didn't want to discuss that, I'm, I'm assuming. Right. Well, like so MacArthur notes, chapter, uh, this is chapter 9, but same uh, application of what you're bringing up, Wayne. Uh, when he notes, unbelief does biased research on a purely subjective basis. Like these, it's, it's like you see so often in our world today, even amongst Christians, like, when you have a slant you're trying to impose on other people, you'll omit certain details that doesn't make it look good, and you'll try to doctor your angle, if you will, to make it appealing to those you're trying to sell on it. Um, and if you've, got a, if you've got an unrighteous, sinful agenda, like these people did, these were not believers, these people were not saved, they were willing to do whatever it took to, to kill Jesus, get rid of him, maintain their power and control over the people of Israel. That's what we see going on here. Okay, so uh, question four, what is significant about what Jesus shouted on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles? That's verses 37 to 39 of John 7. And you may have missed this if you didn't have a commentary or if you didn't notice the uh, footnote that's on the bottom of page 52. Somebody read that footnote Bottom of page 52, that's going to answer the question for us. MacArthur threw us a, um, an easy question here because he gives us the answer right in the midst of our reading. Bottom of page 52, who wants to read that? Bottom left. If anyone thirsts, the feast of tabernacles featured grease parent containers filled with water. A, 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 a company by Thirst, remissive 
Yeah. So, so, um, so what's, what do you think, in, in your own words, what's Jesus trying to say ultimately? So the feast he's at, it's, it's about trying to picture how, how, how water is a blessing, rainfall, right? It's a blessing. It's a sign of, of blessing from God. And now Jesus is saying at the same feast, he's saying, if anyone thirsts, come and drink from me and you will have living waters flowing in your heart. Out of your heart, you'll have living waters flowing. So what's Jesus, what's Jesus getting at there? He's saying, I'm the fulfillment of this. The blessing that comes, that's pictured in this Feast of Tabernacles, God's blessing will be even more so bestowed upon you if you would come to me by faith and you will have living waters overflowing out of your heart. He's saying, I am the fulfillment of what this feast symbolizes, signifies, foreshadows, pictures, whatever adjective you want to use. He's saying, this is about me. And I'm here now. I'm the fulfillment. Come to me and drink. Be satisfied. Be blessed. Receive the blessing spiritually that I, I and I alone can provide as the Messiah and Son of God. I think that's pretty rich. Pretty bold, too, if he's not who he claims to be. I mean, he's, again, he's, he's, a, he's a maniac, right? I mean, we can all agree to that. He's crazy if he's not truly who he claims to be. And we see that metaphor of water. Go to page 64. We're carrying on now in our questions. Um, MacArthur notes again, the metaphor of water is used throughout the Bible to express God's power to heal and save. Read Ezekiel 47 verses 1 to 9, keeping in mind Jesus' statement in John 7 verses 37 to 39. So I'm going to read that portion of Scripture The key verse is verse 9, Ezekiel 47. And I want you to think about what we just read together in John 7. Jesus says, if you believe in me, out of your heart will flow living waters. Now, the context of Ezekiel 47, this is a vision that Ezekiel has of a temple in which at the beginning of Ezekiel, the presence of God is, is shown as leaving the temple as a sign of God's judgment on Israel. And then at the end of Ezekiel, he gets a new vision of a new temple. And then God's presence is in the temple, signifying that God's favor will return to Israel at some point in the future. So that, that's what's going on here in the broader horizon of Ezekiel. But notice what Ezekiel writes here in his prophecy. He says, Then he brought me back to the door of the house, and behold, water was flowing from under the threshold of the house toward the east, for the house faced east. And the water was flowing down from under, from the right side of the house, from south of the altar. He brought me out by way of the north gate, led me around on the outside to the outer gate by way of the gate that faces east. And behold, water was trickling from the south side. When the man went out toward the east with a line in his hand, he measured a thousand cubits, and he led me through the water, water reaching the ankles. Again, he reached a thousand, uh, he measured a thousand rather, and led me through the water, water reaching the knees. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water, water reaching the loins. Again, he measured a thousand, and it was a river that I could not ford, for the water had risen enough water to swim in, a river that could not be forded. He said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he brought me back to the bank of the river. Now, when I had returned, behold, on the bank of the river, there were very many trees on the one side and on the other. Then he said to me, These waters go out toward the eastern region 
and go down into the Arabah. Then they go toward the sea, being made to flow into the sea, and the waters of the sea became fresh. And here's the key, verse 9. It will come about that every living creature which swarms in every place where the river goes will live, and there will be very many fish, for these waters go there and the others become fresh, so everything will live where the river goes. Okay, so again, another Old Testament picture here of Jesus, the fulfillment of just as that river in that Ezekiel vision, just as that river would give life to those fish that would that would be in that water and it would turn um, that river would, would take other sources of water and make them into fresh water. So also does Jesus do the same to us for those who drink of him, they receive life spiritually and uh, the, the sin and the misery in the lives of sinners symbolized by, um, by salt water or, or unfresh water, they become cleansed and they become transformed. It's a picture of what happens when somebody comes to saving faith. Again, another marvelous Old Testament illusion that Christ is drawing from to point his first century audience to him. Say, listen, you guys are familiar with all this in the Old Testament. It points to me. I'm the fulfillment. Come and be satisfied. Have your life changed. Have your life cleansed. That's the same message that we need to hear today in our, in our life. If you're a believer, you drink from that water. You've been You've been saved, your life's been transformed, and God is sustaining you in your Christian life through the living waters that he provides in Christ. And for the unbeliever, if anyone here tonight has not yet trusted in Christ as Lord and Savior, or listening uh, to the audio of, of this lesson, you need only drink from Christ. Come to him by faith. He will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. He will transform your life. He will take all the sin and misery Um, and wickedness in your life of rebellion, and he will gradually cause it to be made fresh, to be made new. That is the hope of the gospel. So I hope that's something that we can all praise God for tonight. I trust that um, y'all are in Christ, but if if for whatever reason um, somebody here does not know Christ, I, I entrust you to the Lord, and I just call you as the scripture does. Drink of Christ. Be refreshed. Be cleansed. Be forgiven. Well, number five, on that note, we've mentioned Christ as the light of the world. We've, we've read that in John 8. We've talked about Christ as the living water. We just, um, you just listened to me give an extensive discussion on that. Um, how is that going, how's that going to impact the way that you, that you live your life as a believer and that you share your faith with others, okay? When you think of, let's just start with, um, you, I'll, I'll say this. Pick one. Pick Christ as offering living water or Christ as being the light of the world. How does that metaphor, that picture, how does that impact you as a Christian as you leave here tonight? How's that going to impact you as you share your faith with others? Love to hear your thoughts. Absolute necessity. Oh, yeah. The living water. I mean, it is, Three days without it, you're a dead man. Yeah, I mean, you, it, it is the thing that keeps you alive. Mm. You can go a long time without food, but you cannot go long without water. Mm. Uh, so that's, that's what I think of it. Yeah. That's good, Nick. 
Any other thoughts before we move on? Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Absolutely. That's right. That's important. Can Can you take a step in utter darkness? I've never I've never seen really utter darkness. I've heard people say you can get far back into a cavern or a cave, far enough back that that it becomes utter darkness. I mean, if you if you think about it, it's all of a sudden, not all of a sudden, but you're in a place where it's utter darkness. Yeah, you may be able to walk, but you're going to hurt yourself, or you're going to caught. You know, you're going to go um, on, on a on a bad path potentially. It could harm you, harm others. You'll be afraid. Just think about trying to trying to maneuver yourself at all. Right. You can't, basically, you can't because you don't know which way to go. That's right. You know, one thing to be lost at night. You're going to be lost at night. You just go in circles. That's what the moon, the sun, and the star. But put yourself in utter darkness and see if you can mm. find your way out. Yeah. Mm. Without light. That's true. Well, number six, this is important as well. Um, it's one of the key observations we've already hinted at tonight. But what truth is revealed by the fact that the Jews and Pharisees would not believe in Christ even when faced with the man who had been miraculously healed of his blindness. What does that teach us? They just saw a man who was blind from birth, and now he sees. Parents say, yep, that's our son. He was born blind. He sees now. Um, No one could deny that. But people who knew him knew him well even, was familiar with him, they just didn't believe that Jesus, who this man claimed performed the miracle, that he was the Messiah and Son of God. Why Why do you think that? I mean, do you think that that would be enough evidence to cause someone to believe? Is there enough evidence to cause anyone to believe? That's, that's really the question I'm going for here. Or hardened, yeah. Hardened. Yeah. But my question for us is, can, can we ever provide enough evidence for someone to believe? Can't do it. Why do you th- and, and why do you think so? Because we're that spiritually dead. Romans 1, 18 and following. Man is so opposed to God in his spiritual state naturally. Unbeliever, unregenerate. He suppresses the truth of God and unrighteousness. He wants nothing to do it. He does not want to surrender his life to God's lordship. And then, um, who here is familiar with the parable of um, Lazarus and the rich man in Hades? Luke 16, 19-31. How does that parable end? He says, the rich man, he says, Father Abraham, Send Lazarus back to my family so they don't end up here like me. He says, well, they have the Scriptures. They have the Law and the Prophets. They have the Scriptures. Let them hear hear the Scriptures. He says, no, 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 you don't understand. 
If, if they see a man who's, who's risen from the dead, send Lazarus, they'll believe. They'll, they'll listen. The evidence will be enough. They won't end up here. And you know what he says? He says, nope. Won't be enough. And it says in Matthew 28, when Jesus stood in front of people, it says some doubted. He's right there. You just saw him die three days ago. Some doubted. Right? So my, my thing is, like, yes, can God use evidence as part of the means to save somebody? Sure. Right? We should do apologetics. We should, we should give reasons to believe. I'm not saying that. Throughout the book of Acts, Paul, Peter, they're, show, they're, they're making appeals. Hey, look at all this evidence. Look at all of these signs and wonders. He's who he claimed to be. Yeah, that's part of the means. But the evidence itself, no evidence in and of itself will ever change any sinner's mind apart from the Spirit of God transforming them from a state of spiritual deadness to spiritual life. You need regeneration. You need the new birth to allow somebody to respond in faith. That's the key, guys. Got to have it. And that's what Jesus is talking about in John 8, 36. What's he saying? Somebody read John 8, 36. Question 7. Very good. So what? It, so, so free from what? What do you think he's talking about there? Stand firm. Yeah, free from sin, right? Notice what he says just a few verses earlier. Verse 34. So I'm going to read John 8, 34. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Right, so practices. That's, that's in the um, present tense and the active voice. I gave you a little bit of... Um, of grammar there. So present tense means it's, it's marked by ongoing, active voice. It, it's something that is, is intentional and it's being done again and again and again. So it's, it's, it's like the, the highest degree of amplification in the Greek language. If something's in the present tense and the active voice. What that's saying is anyone whose lifestyle is marked by unbroken, continual, ongoing sin, they're a slave. They're, they're not a Christian. They're not in Christ. They're not saved. They are slaves because their life is marked by a complete, unbroken, unhindered pattern of sin. And Jesus says just two verses later, he says, if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. True freedom from sin and, of course, um, eternal judgment for that sin. It's Christ. He's the one that sets you free. We don't set ourselves free. Jesus sets us free from our slavery to sin. That's salvation. Beautiful, beautiful picture of salvation there. Well, um, we've talked about the Good Shepherd, question eight. Um, We won't belabor that point. Um, Question nine, I wanted to talk about this a little bit. Um, And this is something I wrestled with bringing this up, but I think it needs to be said, especially for you younger kids who um, are going to go to college someday. You may uh, go to a college that's not um, Christian or it might just be a secular college. It might not be vehemently anti-Christian, but you may have this brought up um, in in secular school. Or it may be something if you're sharing your faith with friends or family that this might get brought up for you adults. It's something we need to be aware of, though, if you aren't already. Um, how many of you guys, when you read John seven fifty three to eight eleven, you saw your text in brackets, or there was an asterisk by it? Check your Bibles. There, there's either they're going to be like an asterisk, or there's going to be um, brackets. 
You guys see that? Look in your Bible, Cash. What do you, what do you got? John seven fifty three brackets. Yeah. All right. And then, um, so, have you ever seen that before? There's one other text in the New Testament. Mark eight. The, uh, Mark sixteen. 16 yeah. 16, uh, but eight, yeah. but yeah, eight to the end of the chapter. Yeah. Um, so, I, I wanted to I wanted to say this just just for your benefit. If you've never studied this or heard of this before, um, something you need to you need to be aware of. Um, those two texts, John seven fifty three to eight eleven, and Mark sixteen, I believe it's nine to twenty. Let me verify. It's right there. Um, yeah, nine to twenty. So those two texts, those two passages are not found in the earliest, most reliable manuscripts for Mark's gospel or John's gospel. Um, so when, when these books were first written, they were written by uh, Mark was written by Mark. Um, who was a close relation to Peter. And then, of course, John was John. He was an apostle. He wrote this. And when they would have written this book originally, they would have written it on papyri, and they would have had that original copy copied by other Christians so that they would have those books in their church. And over time, as they wanted the word of God to be spread, they would make copies of that copy, and then those copies would be spread. Well, today, um, we have roughly 5,000 700 Greek manuscripts that are anywhere from a full copy of a book of the Bible or um, just a a fragment of a book of the Bible. We have about 5,700 manuscripts today. Um, And in those manuscripts, we have so many manuscripts available of of all the copying of the Bible that we can look at those manuscripts and compare them with one another. And we can determine with, I think nowadays the consensus is... um, 98% 98% a 98% degree of certainty of what was contained in the original manuscripts that were written um, by, by John and Mark and all the New Testament authors. Well, when we do that work of comparing all the manuscript evidence that we have copied today, some 5,700, um, it, it, it's found that the Mark 16, 9 to 20 and the John 7, 53 to 8, 11, it was, it was likely added in at a later time. Now, here's the key. So why is it in our Bible, right? So if it was added in later, if it's not in the earliest and most reliable manuscripts, why is it in our Bible? Well, it's in our Bible because it's in the oral tradition that survived from the time that those Gospels were being written to the time when it somehow got added in later. So there is great likelihood that these events did take place. However, they, they, were not, they were not original to the gospel. So a version of this event in John 7 likely happened at some point in Jesus' ministry. Mark 16, 9 to 20, though all the details are, are likely not, not completely correct to this extent that it was added in. It's not, it's not Holy Spirit-inspired scripture. A version of that event likely happened. Okay, uh, the, Theologians would say that... Um, they would distinguish between the voice of an event and the, the exact words of the event. So, so the, the voice, the, the big picture of Mark 16, 9 to 20, the big picture of John 7, 53 to 8, 11, that happened. But the exact words that are contained in those sections, we don't know for sure if those words were actually um, original because they came later. So I wanted you guys to be aware of that because a lot of people will say, hey, look, there's these two portions in the new testament where 
they were added later on, so we just can't trust the Bible because how do we know that there weren't other parts of the Bible that were added in after the fact? And the answer to that question is because we have surviving manuscript evidence that we can compare manuscripts with one another, and in doing so, we can determine whether or not something was there early or whether it came late. So just know that. I wanted to share that. Um, it's very important because today, scholars like Bart Ehrman um, have literally made millions and millions of dollars trying to deceive Christians on this particular matter and casting doubt at the reliability of Scripture. And I just wanted to provide you with a little bit of, um, I know it's a lot to take in the first time hearing that, if this is the first time you're hearing it, but hopefully that whets your appetite to to maybe study this a little bit longer. And uh, if you have any questions about that, I can talk about it later. But let's just talk about the the actual event, the event in John 8, 1 to 11. Um, What did you see? The woman caught in adultery. Everybody loves this story. Like I said, we don't know if these exact words are verbatim precise, but we do know this event likely or a similar event likely happened. It was preserved in the the oral tradition when the manuscripts were being copied. What do we see? How do we see Christ's forgiveness and grace? Where do we see pride in this text? Where do we see repentance in this text? What What do you all see here? All right, let's walk through it together. We'll make, a, we'll make observations together. So what, what, what's happening here? Very beginning, walk through it with me. Scribes and Pharisees, what are they doing here? They're accusing this woman of adultery. Yeah, accusing them of adultery. There's a big gathering, right? Jesus is teaching a big gathering of people. Scribes and Pharisees, they find a woman caught in adultery. Um, they have the two or three witnesses, right, from Deuteronomy that they needed to have her stoned, right? And this, again, just cause, They have every right by virtue of the Old Testament law, which they were still under at this time in history. They had just cause to stone her to death. Um, But notice, were their motives pure? No. No, right? What does it say? Verse 6. They're testing him, right? Because they know, listen, hey, yeah, Jesus, he loves the Old Testament. So... He's, he's, he's not going to have a biblical basis to say we can't do this. But listen, if he says that we can stone this woman, we're going to spread it far and wide that he was in favor of having somebody killed. And then he's going to lose all of his following and all of his credibility. So we're, we're in a win-win situation here is what the Pharisees are thinking, right? So there's pride, right? Um, now, what does Jesus do in response to that? Verse 7. He doesn't initially answer, right? Middle of verse 6, he, he hears what they says and he stoops down and he just starts doodling on the ground. Nobody knows what he wrote on the ground. I, I mean, I'm sure many sermons have been preached about what was written on the ground here. But then he, he, he doesn't answer their question directly, does he? But look, look what he does here. He turns it around on them. He says, he who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. In other words, yeah, you have a right to stone her, but let's do a little bit of internal self-examination. Where are you guys at right now? What's your life look like? So he shows wisdom there, right? Great wisdom. He knows it's a trap. He's not going to fall for it. He's going to turn it on its head and use it as an opportunity to teach a spiritual lesson. And then they all take off. And I love this, verse 9 It says, beginning with the older ones, they all hit the road. (laughs) 
like the older people know, hey, man, I've got 60 years of sin in my life. I'm hitting the road. Like, I, I can't throw a stone here. And the younger ones start thinking, you know what? Yeah, I'm, I'm not too good either. Uh, I think it's time for me to leave. And it's just Jesus and the woman, right? Now, here's, this is key. Verse 10 says, where's everybody now? Uh, did no one condemn you? And then she says, no one, Lord. He says, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on, sin no more. So um, forgiveness and grace, obviously Christ shows incredible grace and forgiveness. He doesn't condemn her, though he has just cause to. It's a picture of the gospel. God has every just cause to condemn us to hell. He doesn't do it, right, through, through the atoning work of Christ. And for those who place their faith in Christ, he forgives them of their sin, and he treats Christ on the cross as if he had lived their lives of sin. Picture of the gospel right here in John 8. And then, this is what I also want us to observe. He says, go from now on, sin no more. So Jesus not only like says, hey, cheap grace, you're forgiven, now go back and commit adultery. He says, no, like you're forgiven, but transform your life, change your life. There's, repeated, there's a call to repentance there from Christ. Deals with sin with everyone. Deals with sin with everyone. That's key. So guys, even when, we, even when we are being compassionate and gracious, you know, we, have, we might have friends or family who live terrible lives. They need Christ. They need grace. They need mercy. They need forgiveness. That's all true. Everybody needs that. But that never gives us the right to soften the grace of God and use it as a license to sin. Jesus extends grace and mercy and forgiveness to this woman, but then he calls her to lordship. He says, go and sin no more. Have a transformed life. Go. Go and be who you've been called to be as someone who's been created in the image of God. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. Which is why, if I had to preach the gospel of John, I'm I'm probably going to preach that narrative. I'm going to make sure I gave, like I told you guys, hey, here's the, here's the baggage around the passage. We don't know if it's original, but we do know that it was preserved in the oral tradition. And to some extent, a, a version of this took place at some point in the life of Christ. So much so that a scribe felt the need to add it. So um, anyways, something to think about and chew on there. Um, and then last question before we'll close with the truth for today that MacArthur gives us. I appreciate y'all patience. I know it's been a long lesson, but lots to chew on. I mean, four chapters, you've got to spend a little bit of time on it, right? Uh, I mean, I couldn't just keep you here for an hour with four chapters worth of John. Man, we had to go deep. Uh, question 10. As the self-proclaimed light of the world, Jesus speaks blunt truth to the darkened hearts of sinful people. Will we hear and obey? Or like the Pharisees, Will we resist and reject the hard truth of God? In what areas of your life do you sense the Lord speaking uncomfortable words to you? And what will you do? I figured we could apply this to just our church. We don't have to get too personal. Let's keep it broad. Like in our church, what is it in our culture or in our church life or, or in our community as a whole? Like not, not our community like in terms of our church, but like the community of Edna or Jackson County, Victoria County, our immediate area. What are some hard truths that we might have to speak and and how can we model faithfulness when encountering such an instance so like what are some common issues today that we as christians and we as a church cannot compromise on in order to be faithful to god and his word so there's 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 three that I can think of right off the gate. Like these are, these are pressing hot button issues that you and I are going to be called hateful and bigots for 
taken a stand against. What do you guys think those would be? What's that? Pride movement. That's one. LGBTQI. Somebody comes, hey, I want to do a wedding here with my, with my homosexual spouse or my, or my homosexual fiance to make, my, make them my legal spouse. Um, Catholicism, probably one. Was that on your list? I did not write that, but I will say, yeah, you got to take a stand against uh, f- heresy, heresy, right? Like, I mean, you might you might have somebody joining this church who believes that you're saved through baptism, and you and you say, hey, listen, brother, sister, or, well, excuse me, listen, sir, ma'am, they're they're not a brother or sister if they believe salvation through baptism. Listen, sir, ma'am, um, we love you. We're glad you're here, um, but but we're not saved through any works of our own, no matter how spiritual or religious we want to make those works out to be, we cannot let you join our church until you hold to a biblical understanding of the gospel. Or say you find out, kids, you find out that um, somebody your age is, um, is sleeping with somebody of the opposite sex. They're not married, but they're members of this church. You know, you, you, and it gets brought up, and it's being publicly celebrated and talked about. You may have to have a hard conversation. Hey, listen, you, know, you, you need to repent of that sin. And as a member of this church, if you don't repent, I'm going to hold you accountable to that. And I'm going to inform our spiritual leadership. If you don't change here. Um, and, you, and that's loving to do first Corinthians 13, six love um, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but it rejoices with the truth. So you, you can have truth without love, but you can't have love without truth. You may have to speak a hard truth in that situation. Or what about abortion? I mean, that's a, that's literally Kansas just voted last night to allow abortion to continue in that state. Can you imagine our brothers and sisters in Kansas who are going to have to speak some hard truths to people who claim, you know, my body, my choice. Um, or, hey, someone gets raped in the rare event and they, they want to have an abortion. You still have to tell them, listen, that, that, that is heartbreaking and we are here to help you in any way that we can. But. It is not biblical or God-honoring to terminate life under any condition. Um, or Black Lives Matter, BLM movement, you know. We can say as Christians, all lives matter. Every person's been created in the image of God, regardless of your ethnicity or the color of your skin. But we cannot support a system that in and of itself undermines um, key aspects of Christianity, such as the nuclear family, such as... Um, the right to life for the unborn, um, the elevation of one group of people at the um, devaluing or at the expense of another group of people. We can't stand for that as Christians, right? Those are some instances we can think of where as a church, we have to be willing to stand for truth, even when it's hard to do that. And that's why it's so important to be unified as a church, because there's going to be times it may not happen in the foreseeable future. We live in rural America right now, but we got to be we got to be here for one another. We've got to be like minded in doctrine and in our in our in our church's ministry vision as a whole so that when persecution comes from the world, we stand together. We pick one another up when we struggle. That's my prayer for all of us. I'm going to close with MacArthur's paragraph and I'll pray. Truth for today, take home, fits nicely into what we just got done considering there. He says, when we preach, teach, and witness that Christ is the only way to God, we are not proclaiming our own view of right religion, but God's revelation of truth. We do not proclaim the narrow way simply because we are already in it or because it happens to suit our temperament 
or because we are bigoted and exclusive. Rather, we proclaim the narrow way because it is God's way and God's only way for people to find salvation and eternal life. We proclaim a narrow gospel because Jesus said in John 10, 9, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he shall be saved. Let's pray. Thank you so much for being here tonight. Looking forward to continuing our study next week in chapter 11. Let's pray. Father, we've considered much tonight, and Father, very, uh, very sure that a lot more could be said. I mean, this was nearly 200 verses of Holy Spirit-inspired truth that we've considered tonight, and we're going to spend all of eternity learning about your excellencies and your glory, basking in your goodness, all of your glorious attributes, the God of our salvation. We thank you tonight, Father, that in love you predestined us to adoption as sons in Christ Jesus, that you not only predestined us to salvation, Father, but you also predestined us to good works, that we would walk as your workmanship in this life to your glory, to the building up of your people, and to witness before watching world that we belong to you and your kingdom. Father, we thank you that we're part of your sheepfold. God, that we, have, we did nothing to earn or deserve all the spiritual and temporal blessings that you've given to us. Father, would we never take that for granted? Would we never grow entitled or demanding of you? Father, thank you for your word. Though we read four chapters tonight and um, though we've been here for quite some time, Lord, I think of all the men and women who gave their life, literally gave their life to enable your people to have your word for all these generations since the time of Christ. Father, help us to not neglect studying it. Help us to study it with passion and with a desire to commune with you and to know you deeper. And then God did not only just grow in our head knowledge, but to take it, apply it to our lives, share it with others, point those who are in this lost, sin-cursed, and perishing world to the living waters that are only provided through Christ. Give us boldness and compassion. Give us firmness and yet graciousness when we go forth and we point people to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As a church body, would we be faithful to upholding the truths of your word, regardless of the cost? We know that the cost is likely to come, but would it never change our zeal for standing firm in the work you've called us to do in this life and in the doctrine that you've called us to believe in this life as revealed to us in Scripture? And God, as we leave this place tonight, I just pray for every family represented around this room. I pray for your blessing upon them. I pray you would help them to continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. I pray, Father, you would keep them safe as they drive home, that you would help them to be all the more satisfied in their relationship with you. Father, that you would make each of us more into the likeness of Christ as a result of sanctification. And God, even now that you'd begin to work on our hearts to prepare us to worship you corporately again on the Lord's Day, which is on the horizon, the pinnacle of every week. We love you, God. We give you thanks for tonight. We pray for your blessing on us as we leave this place. Praying in Christ's name, amen.